Hey friends, welcome to God on Tap, and as always, I'm Nike Spaulding, and we are going to continue to press on in our book of Jude, and we are on now part C of the same verses uh, that we've been reading, but I think it's probably wise that we take this slowly, since like we've said from the other ones, if you haven't already listened, you're jumping into some deep waters here, and so go back and listen, but this is one of those books, the book of Jude is one of those places where you got to kind of click on all the hyperlinks and take the deep dive. And so we're continuing that today with our third example from the Old Testament. So we're going to, yeah, so let's jump right in. We're going to look at Jude verses 5 through 10 again today, and we'll hit that third Old Testament example as we get in there. So this is the word of the Lord. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay or keep within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he, Jesus, has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. He said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so we have been slowly working our way through it because, again, Jude is using three different Old Testament stories as well as a little bit of other um, Jewish literature during his time to make his point. So the first one was the people wandering in the wilderness in Numbers 14. The second one was these rebellious angels or the watchers, as we learned about yesterday. And then the third one, as you saw there in the text, is the, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which... If you don't know anything about Christianity, like let's just say you have never read the Bible, you don't know the first thing about, if you don't know the difference between Malachi and Matthew, right? And somebody were to come up to you and you live in America today and somebody was like, tell me about Sodom and Gomorrah. Chances are you would know that that is a negative reference. Like that, like the story of Sodom and Gomorrah has, like if it's like a, a, rock in a pond and you got those reverberations like the bloop, 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 as it goes out. This is one of those stories from the ancient text that people in literature, in art, in movies, in common parlance, they're like, oh, it's a regular old day, Sodom and Gomorrah. Or you hear terms like, man, he was just like raining down fire and brimstone. That term fire and brimstone is from that story in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so this is one of those stories that people even if they're not sure about what stories are in the scriptures, this is something that a lot of people have at least had some reference to, which is really unbelievable. It tells you the extent to which the story of Sodom and Gomorrah has been a warning to even people outside of the faith journey, okay? So this is what we're going to do. This is our third hyperlink. We're clicking on it. New window opens up on our computer screen. Boom. What's going on in Genesis 19? So Genesis 19, so far in our story, God's created the whole world. Everything went to hell in a handbasket. God relents. 
He sends a worldwide flood. He starts over with Noah. The people are still ridiculous. We have the Tower of Babel. The God has to spread them. And so, boom, we get to the end of chapter 11 of Genesis. And that's sort of like these big events. Creation, fall, flood, tower, Abe, Ike, Jake, Joe. Boom. Now we're moving into, sorry, we're moving into the Abe, Ike, Jake, Joe. So we're going from prehistoric like events, creation, fall, flood, tower. Now we're going into this people. Now the camera lens is shifting and God's saying, okay, I need a person and a family to be my representative on the earth. And so he grabs Abraham, a man from the land of Ur of Chaldeans. He is a childless man. He comes to him and he says, hey, bro, bro, pack up everything and I'm going to move you to a different land, a land of Cana. And this guy goes, which is crazy faith, because in the ancient world, it's not like you just hop on Zillow and you're like, oh, cute land. I think I'll go there. No, 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 no. It's like treacherous. It's dangerous. You rarely leave your family. And so he packs up everything, leaves his family, which is the most important unit in the ancient world. And he travels with God to the land of Cana. Now there's all kinds of like crazy stuff that happens along the way, you know, people taking on his wife and he's like, hey, hey, that's my sister. And then God's like, don't touch her. And there's all kinds of crazy stories in Genesis. It's popping. But one of the things that happens is Abraham takes with him his nephew, a guy named Lot. Okay, no big deal, whatever. Takes him with him. Well, Lot's herd grows largely and Abraham and Sarah's, uh, you know, basically there's not enough room for them to dwell together is what Lot says. So Abraham says, okay, great, pick a land and go live there. So Lot, surveying the land, goes and he picks a place near the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is for, like, we, sh- we read that and we get it already. We're like, this doesn't look good. And it doesn't, right? At one point, Lot gets carried off by these, like, there's, like, feuding kings, And one foreign king comes in and fights the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. And they, like, take the people off. And so, like, Abraham has to, like, go and rescue Lot and all this stuff. So fast forward. All of a sudden, Abraham gets visited by three messengers. Okay? So this is the story. They've got three messengers come to him. And they're like, hey, Abe. And he's like, hey, let me make you some food. Sarah, make some food. And they're chillaxing in their ancient way of chillaxing, reclining, drinking, eating, chatting. And they're like, bro, bro we feel it's important to let you know why we're here. And he's like, oh, yeah, what's up? And they're like, we're, we're going to um, destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's like, ooh, that's going to be a little bit of a problem for me because my family's there. And so that's where we get this famous scene where Abraham starts to, you know, like negotiate. What if there's this many people? Okay, for that many people, we're like, okay, okay, okay. What if there's this many people? No, okay, okay, okay. Which reminds me of a very funny story. My niece was about six years old and she had a trampoline or actually it was a bounce house that was rented for her birthday. And it was like 8 p.m. It was dark. It was cold. It's October. She's been playing on it literally all day. And she and my brother calls her to come in the house and he's like, hey, baby girl, you got five more minutes. And she goes, ten. And he goes, four. And she goes, ten. And he goes, three. And she goes, ten. And he goes, two. And she goes, okay, 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 five. And runs back out the door. Uh, She's an expert negotiator, as you can tell. And so... Yeah, Abraham uses his negotiation skills. He gets them to negotiate down to a very low number. Here's the problem. There is no one righteous, no, not even one in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so the angels leave Abram and they go into the city and they agree to spare Abram's family if they're willing, which is very key. Now, once we get into the city, all hell breaks loose. So they go into Lot's house. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah, the men of Sodom and Gomorrah are like, gah, 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 gah. Give us these messengers. We want to have sex with them, which is horrifying, 
right? You don't even, like sometimes you read stories in the Bible and you don't know if you should read them as positive, negative, or neutral. You're like, I don't know if this is weird or not. Like that's kind of an odd story, but I'm not really from the ancient world. Like, no, you don't even have to wonder. You, anybody reading this should be like, that ain't right. And since we know these are angels, it's very similar to what we've seen with like the angels wanting to sleep with the daughters of man. This is a similar thing where men want to have sex with angelic beings, which is totally against the created order. And so Lot, which by the way, not the best character moment for Lot goes, no, 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 you cannot do this thing. He's trying to protect this, this ideal of hospitality and he offers his daughters. And again, you don't have to wonder, is that positive, negative, or neutral? You should be aghast at that. And they're like, no, no, we want to have sex with the angels, send them out. And he's like, please do not do this horrible thing. And so finally the angels are like, Hey, Lot, we're going to have to take over from here. This is not a city we can save. Their rebellion is too great. They refuse to repent. So we're going to burn it to the ground. So they take Lot They tell his family they can leave. There are members of Lot's family that choose to not go. There's the famous story of Lot's wife turning back. She turns into a pillar of salt. And then Lot gets out with his two daughters. And I'm just going to tell y'all the story from Lot from there. Not a super positive one. So if you want to go read what happens, not good. There's incest. Spoiler alert. Ew. So that's the story of what's going on. And then God gets Lot and his daughters out. They look back at their city from like the overperch. And then this is where we get this apocalyptic language of they burn the city to the ground with fire and brimstone from heaven. It becomes a smoldering wasteland of God taking out this entire city. And that is the story that Jude is referencing. And so you're going, wow. And, and wow is right. Sodom and Gomorrah is the, the story that the scriptures constantly refer back to when they're talking about divine judgment. So when the prophets want to talk about divine judgment, they're like, hey, remember Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember that God has a history of bringing down discipline upon iniquity. Where sin abounds, God will be just. And we see this throughout the scriptures. And we know that God is patient. We know he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But we also know that he is just. And we know that sometimes part of justice is there is consequence. And so this is this story of Sodom and Gomorrah, like Deuteronomy references it. Isaiah references it. In fact, I think Isaiah references it twice. Jeremiah three times and on and on. Like the scriptures consistently point back to Sodom and Gomorrah and go, listen, God is not the kind of God that you can make light of his divine decrees. You cannot make light of sexual immorality. There is a consequence for your sexual immorality. There's a consequence for your immorality and all of that stuff. Not only do the scriptures reference it, you there are other pieces of literature, including Josephus, Philo, um, wisdom literature that talks about this is a wasteland that is in that speaks to the divine wrath of God. This is a wasteland that is a that has been a persistent. It's like a, um, uh, you know, if you've ever been somewhere where there has been a a catastrophic event or a major event. So 9-11, okay? So if you guys, if you, I mean, if I just say 9-11, this is an example of what I mean. Like, you know what I'm talking about, especially if you're old enough to remember. So on, on 9-11, America was attacked by, by enemies. If you go to that spot today, what do you see? You see a memorial there, right? It's a reminder to us of these horrific events. And it's a reminder to us that, that speaks from the past into our present day. That is how 
the area of Sodom and Gomorrah is referenced, that it is, a, it is still smoldering is how sometimes it talks about, or that the fires are there. It's that there is a, the wickedness is still attested to by a smoking waste is like what one of them says. And so it's a still burning sight is what people are going to reference. So that is what Jude is referencing back to. So he's talking about his three Old Testament stories. He's got the first one. He's like, hey, those false leaders led the people in the wilderness for an entire generation until they all died off. Second one, angels. They wanted unnatural desires with women. They pursued them. There was a consequence. They, are, they, they did not keep to their place. And now they are being kept in their eternal chains. And then the third one is he's like, now I'm going to use the like trump card of them all. Sodom and Gomorrah, and you know how that ends for them, where there's literal rain of consequence that comes down from the sky. And he's using all three of those examples to then transition into how the false teachers of his current day are like them. Okay, so he's like, hey, I just gave you three very strong, didn't pull punches, examples of divine judgment upon wayward behavior and upon poor leadership. And then he tells us this is how these people are doing. And they serve as an example to us from the past. The past, these this still smoldering land of Sodom and Gomorrah is a past reminder of warning, of judgment, of what could come if you do not repent. And then he says, uh, and he says, and he says, yet in like manner, these people So when he says these people, he's talking about the false teacher in the same manner as these three examples I just gave you, relying on their dreams, which is an interesting phrase right there. And what he means by that is he's he's most likely referencing these false teachers. It is very common in the first century for people to claim authority and they use dreams as their guide for authority. Okay, so they come in and they go, hey, this is from God. I know because I had a dream. It's like if I if I said to you, hey, I have some, a word from God. I know I received a prophecy. Dreams, prophecies, all these things were very common in the first century. And so these false teachers have come in and he says, hey, these people are just like those three bad examples. They rely on their dreams. So they're using their dreams as their self-appointed authority. So they're like, that's just weird, right? Like I'm important. Why are you important? Because I had a dream. How do we know you had a dream? Because I said I had a dream. Well, that's kind of self-serving, isn't it? Yeah, but I'm important because I had a dream. Like that's the logic behind it. And he says, and then they defile the flesh, which is code in Jude, that's code language for sexual immorality. It's just that term defile the flesh is the same term used of the fallen angels throughout Jewish literature. That defile the flesh is referring to sexual immorality. So he says, listen, these false teachers who use their own dreams as a way to purport their own authority, they engage in sexual immorality. They reject authority, which is to say that they reject those like Jude, like Peter, like Paul, like others who walked with Jesus and established the church and had an early sort of, you know, there's an ecclesiastical structure here. There's this authority that's set up and it's smart because these are the people that walked with Jesus. They're the people that learned from Jesus. They're the people that Jesus appointed to go out and spread his good news. So they participate in sexual immorality. They reject the authority that's already been put in place. And this very interesting phrase, they blaspheme the glorious ones, which you should be being like, what? Which is exactly how you should read that. So what this means most likely is the glorious ones, the doxae, it's most likely a reference to angels. And we're going to, and the reason why is because as we keep going, we hear the story about this archangel Michael who is battling these angels for the body of Moses. I know 
that's the story we're going to get into tomorrow. Very odd. Again, I told you Jude was like 100 feet deep type of jumping into the water. We'll talk about it tomorrow, but that's most likely what Jude is referencing, is these false teachers reveal that they're false by th three different things. They engage in sexual immorality, they reject established authority, and the third one, they blaspheme the glorious ones. That blaspheming the glorious ones, a lot of commentators think it can mean a lot of different things. Um, I've wrestled through it a little bit. What I think is probably happening here is during Jude's time, what was believed in Jewish understanding and in the church understanding is that angels helped mediate the law from Moses to the people. So angels did that. Also, angels oversaw the created order of things. Okay, so they they were sort of these creatures that God created to help mediate in this world and to participate with God as his subordinates and, and all that. And we see this, like, there's this strange thing that Paul says in one of his letters. He's like, hey, we have to we have to be morally pure because we're setting an example because the, or he says, because the angels are watching. And so there's this ethos, this understanding within the first century world that the angels are watching us and that it's their role to try and maintain the created order of things. So the examples that Jude is giving in every one of those examples, the authority of God and the created order is just being disheveled, right? So the word of God in the Kadesh Barnea instance, when they're wandering in the wilderness, they don't trust God. God already promised the land to their forefather, Abraham. He had promised that to Abraham in Genesis 12. He reiterates it in Genesis 15. The land has been promised. And if God promises, you can bet there's a yes and amen at the end of it. And yet they doubt, they doubt, they doubt. So there's the rejecting authority piece. But then angels sleeping with women, and then these men of Sodom wanting to sleep with these angelic visitors all of that is not how things should be. Like God created an established order and he delivers that established order by mediators such as the law and through leaders. And so this is most likely what Jude is referencing is that these false teachers, by ignoring the word of God that God gives to us, that the angels have helped mediate according to Jewish custom, and by ignoring the created order of things, the way that God has designed sexuality, the good way that God has designed that the world should go, they are blaspheming these angels. That is what I believe that Jude is teaching in this, and I believe he's going to do that because, again, he's going to unpack it with Michael the archangel. Okay, so I realize that's a whole lot of what? Right? So here's the too long, didn't read summary. Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, is deeply concerned about these false teachers that have come in. These particular set of false teachers that have come in, rather than being broadly a type of people, they are participating in very serious offenses. So Jude goes into his big bag of Old Testament and, Old, and Jewish stories to say this is what they're like. And he uses the example of Kadesh Barnea. He uses the example of fallen angels. And he uses the par excellence example of rebellion and consequence, which is found in Sodom and Gomorrah. He uses those stories. And then he says, he turns the lens away from these Old Testament stories. And he turns it and he squarely puts it on the false teachers. And he says, listen, in the same way that those Old Testament examples had rebellion and they had consequences. That's exactly what these false teachers are doing. And he's, and they're doing it by this threefold way. One, that they are participating in sexual immorality. Two, that they are rejecting established authority. And three, by they making a mockery of the created order of things. That is his, his point so far in his little letter. And so what's our so what then so far in here? I think that... We live in a time where in the early, early, early church, 
there was ecclesiastical authority. And what I mean by that ecclesiastical is just, I know I used it earlier, I apologize, I should have defined it. It's just a fancy word for like church structure. And in the very early church, there was a very, fairly clearly defined church structure. You know, you had people that walked with Jesus, those guys established churches, then they discipled people under them, and then they helped set up church homes, and then those church homes had leaders, and it was sort of like a succession plan of trusted and mature believers were the succession plan of Jesus, and they were established, and God was with them, and all that stuff. Well, now we live in 2020, and nobody knows who's in charge, okay? Like, like literally, right now, I could just go plan a church, call it a 501c3, say that we believe in Jesus, teach whatever I want, and if I don't have, the, if I don't have people in charge that are going to hold me accountable, who knows what I'm going to do? And the same is true if I want to publish books or start a podcast, i.e., I did. I started one. Who's in charge of it? Like, other than NICA, who's in charge of me? I do what I want, right? So this idea of false teachers creeping into the early church where they are rejecting authority, sound authority, it makes me feel like we're even more vulnerable today. Now, one of the things we have on our side is about 2,000 years of church history. We have the essentials of the faith that we can measure things up against. But the reality is, is there are people that come in and claim to speak for God. And then there are times where we see that that's not true. And I don't tell you all this to bring fear. Instead, I tell you that there is a beautiful litmus test that Jude has left for us. That in the same way Jude is asking the believers that he's writing to to test and approve these false teachers, I think he's telling us, hey, here's a couple of things that we can be look for, that we can be looking for when it comes to the people that we would allow to teach us and to lead us. And the first one is this. If they are engaged in sexual immorality, unrepentant sexual immorality, that should seriously cause us to push stop. That's a red flag. That's not a yellow flag. That's a red flag to just say, okay, hold on. That is not as it should be. Now, again, I think we're all sexually broken, and I'm not interested in getting to degrees as to what is acceptable, okay? Like, I just, I think, though, if you know someone who's like, I'm, I'm having an affair, and I don't plan to repent, they're not fit to lead. If someone's having sex outside of marriage in any context, I don't believe that they're fit to lead. Now, do people make mistakes? Yes. Is there a path to restoration? Yes. But this is an example of people who come in and habitually participate in sexual immorality with no desire for repentance or even the recognition that they're doing wrong. So one, that's a very good litmus test. Secondly, they reject sound authority. I think the way that this looks, since we don't really have people in our authority a lot of times in the church. Now, listen, plenty of churches do. Plenty of churches have authority set up and praise God, right? But even those systems are broken, and we've seen what that can do. And so what authority I would say to look out for is do they reject the authority of the scriptures? And do they reject the authority of what 2,000 years of church history has really taught us? And I'm not saying they have to accept everything in it, but I am saying there are certain essentials. They can't say that Jesus didn't really die. They can't say that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. Those are the kinds of things that they just can't reject. So one, sexual immorality. Two, rejecting authority. And three, making a mockery of the created order. Now, I don't think you should go around and every time someone's making a mockery of the created order, be like, you are blaspheming the holy ones, the glorious ones, although might be a fun thing to do. But are there people who just look at the way that God set the world in motion, what God has called good and what God has called evil, and are they spinning those things for their own advantage? Are they making light of the things that God has spoken out against, like greed, like prejudice, like misogyny? Are they, are they allowing the things that Jesus was opposed to to become a part of their ministry? And if so, I think Jude would say to them, you're unfit to lead. 
And so I think for our so what, I think Jude is right to want to protect the people that he's writing to. And I think that his protection is still a way that we can take his wisdom and apply it today to be weary and, and careful about the people that you would allow to lead you. And I think these three things that we find in verse 8 are a pretty good litmus test for us, that we should look for people who pursue sexual morality and purity, that we should look for people who choose to put themselves under the authority of others because humble leaders know that they need to be led and none of us are that good, so we need to have accountability in our life. And finally, we allow God to define the order of things and tell us what is good and what is right, and we spend our lives trying to pursue that to the glory of God. All right, I know this was long, but we had to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. So tomorrow we will pick up again in this same section, but I think we'll be able to close it out tomorrow, I think. And we'll be talking about uh, Michael the Archangel, not blaspheming angels. So yeah, that's pretty typical. That's what you read every day in your Bible. All right, friends, uh, I'm enjoying this. Hopefully you guys are too. But either way, if nobody's told you that they love you, I do. But way more importantly, the God of the created order is crazy about you. Peace.